0: Welcome to Sing, Coach, Conduct, the podcast for singers and singing teachers. Hello, singers and singing teachers. Thank you for listening to another episode of Sing, Coach, Conduct. I'm your host Megan Ferrison. This is a very special episode because I get to sit down with my high school choir director, Rick Bushy, and his brother Rod Bushy who both had highly successful programs in their decades of teaching. This might be the first time I called Mr. Bushy by his first name consistently in any conversation since I've had him as a teacher. And I know many of you can relate to this experience. In this episode, we talk about different things related to their teaching experience, things they've learned, struggles they've overcome, and we even have a little fun lightning round at the end. So make sure to stay tuned for the whole thing. Hello everyone. I'm really excited about today because I am in a room with 77 years of teaching experience. So Rod and Rick Bushy are brothers and they have had lifelong careers in being choir directors. And Rod taught for 44 years and Rick for 33. So they have just lots of experience and information to give us today. So we're going to get started. We're going to start with Rick. Uh, tell me how you became a choir director.
1: I always wanted to be a music teacher. was going to teach band till my senior year in high school when Paul Schultz came to Mount Pleasant. And that's really the essence of what changed. He was a dynamic uh, teacher, and I fell in love with words. Uh, And I can tell you, it's the Randall Thompson, The Road Not Taken. That's definitely the song that did it for me.
2: Well, you know, I was a back and forth major between trombone and vocal. And uh, I also sang with Paul Schultz in high school and found a passion I didn't know that was there. Uh, Didn't want to have any part of choir when I was in high school. And then I got in choir, and it was like really cool. So I really didn't join choir till my senior year in high school. Also, um, but I was a I was between um, between a, a trombone and a voice major, and it's really funny. Somebody told me he says, "You know, your voice really isn't that good." And I went, "Well, you probably ought to do you probably ought to do trombone." I went, okay, was
0: well, that I- you, Rick? Did you say <laughs> no, that to him? So-
1: was no, of, I didn't say it that. Was somebody from our,
2: it was somebody from our choir, I thought, wow. Um, not the most tactful person, apparently, I was ever, ever met. But um, I ended up taking, really, it was wonderful. Because I ended up taking lessons from the bass from Bonus in Chicago Symphony. And it really helped me improve as a musician. And it taught me work ethic. I mean, going full-time to school, I was... I was practicing 17 hours a week. You don't have 17 hours a week to practice, but with this guy, I did. Plus, I was also uh, playing baseball. I was getting ready for that. And he was as interested. His name was Edward Kleinhammer, the trombone teacher. And he was as interested in my baseball because he had never done anything like this. And he'd ask me all kinds of questions about baseball. I thought, well, you ask me questions about that. (laughs) But um, I took lessons in a... a, uh, the second story of a building in downtown Chicago. And uh, then I switched over to one of his students and finished my career that way. And then when I got to Howell, I was going to be a band director. And they hired the former band director and then called me in August and said, can you do choir? Um, yeah, I can do choir. And so um, I started, of course, I had Rick as a resource and so he he kind of, you know, he I remember the first year he said you need to take your kids to festival. I'm like, what? They've never been to festival. He goes, doesn't matter, take them. And Mel Ivey from Western Michigan was one of our, and I think um, Doctor Groves from uh, CMU was also one of the judges. And my kids earned straight twos, and we thought we had conquered the world. It was amazing. Um, uh, they sang in Jackson high school and it was, um, frightening place. It was a th- like a three story high school gothic architecture. It was scary to look at. In fact, I went back there many years later when I was on the state board and just parked in front of that school and thought this did not define me, but it sure scared me. But my kids, um, got in the warm-up room and they said, did you hear what that choir said to us? There was a choir of 130 kids lined up outside to go in. And they said they were making fun of us. And I thought to myself, well, you know, you're a bunch of country bumpkins. They really were. A lot of the kids had mud in their shoes from doing chores that morning. They were farm kids. And, um, but we made it work. And like I say, they got straight twos and they thought they had just conquered the world. So that was that was how that was what I started. That was my starting hole.
0: So you originally were going to be a band director, and then you ended up needing help from your brother. <laughs> oh,
2: we,
1: yeah, we talked to each other throughout our careers. I'd call him and say, "Okay, now what do you have for this group? What have you done for this size group? And you know, for this ability?" And um, we shared lots of stuff besides music. We shared lots of ideas.
2: Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's music in the Howell Library from Kersley, and I'm sure that Kersley probably still has some Howell music. But we never, <laughs> but we figured it was a pretty even exchange. We would loaned each other music and would deliver that box when we went to the conference. Here's the music you borrowed from me. Oh, yeah, yeah, thanks.
0: You might have already touched on this, uh, Rod, but where did you struggle most when you began teaching?
2: Confidence. Um,. Asking, you know, looking for answers from other successful teacher, immediate teachers. I immediately um, began looking for resources. I went to the very first MSVMA workshop that um, was held at Elma College, uh, and after my that was after my first year of teaching, and um, the gentleman from Battle Creek Central. Giff Richards. Giff Richards was there. And he taught me how to voice choir. choir. And so I, I just started learning things, but I started picking things up. Then I would sit with other directors and chat with them. And, you know, we're a group of people that help each other. And I, I remember somebody that won Teacher of the Year, and they, and she said, you know, I'm a band director. And the band director sticks their hand out to you to shake hands, and said, we're going to kick your butt at Martian Band Festival. He said a choir director comes and hugs you and said, "Man, how you doing this year? Can we help you with anything?" And he said, "It's just a little it was a little different attitude she said when I was between the instrumental and the vocal worlds. Uh, but there's a there's a heart to to teaching choral music that I discovered.
0: What about you, Rick? Where did you struggle most when you began teaching?
1: Kersley was similar in size to Mount Pleasant. That's where everything ended. It was a blue-collar place that Less than 20% of the kids went to college. Um, They'd never had a, a program that was anything to speak of. I threw the tapes away that I listened to from prior years. The biggest thing was how do I really improve? But I had to fight things like teaching them what it meant to have a choir program and how it was necessary to think of as an academic. I had 80 girls in a glee club, mostly sophomores. And I the most copies I had of anything was 33 copies of Close to You. And I said to the principal, you gave me $300 to spend on music. Can't you find something more? And he said, well, can't you just go make a Xerox of them and copy it? And I said, well, yeah, I can. I can do that. But you're going to pay the fine if I get caught. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean well you know it's a pretty hefty fine which if you get caught that's the problem but he didn't know that so he found some other places for me to to have some money and I learned how to sell things I think Rod probably say the same thing in the number of years we taught we sold everything and everybody <laughs> I mean what else can you do um But to get the program established, that was a big deal. And then it was to try and figure out what do I really want to teach? And I think Rod and I both had college director, Dr. Dunbar, that taught us you teach the music that you believe in. Because if you don't believe in it, you won't teach it right. And you do it, and you don't shy away from doing challenging things. And... I think that's been a big important thing of what we what we both did, and there's a there's a satisfaction from you as a director as well as your own kids. They know when they've got it right, and they feel good about it. I mean, you remember that megan we we did some things that didn't always turn out right, but when it did, it was pretty exciting. And, yes, and a lot of times those happen in the classroom. Not necessarily on the performance stage, but um, when the
0: tempos maybe a little that's right, a little too fast. Yeah,
1: yeah. But I really think um, my best memories are not of the performances that we did, but of the times we spent together making music. That's what I enjoyed probably the most. So,
0: talk to me about recruitment. How did you get kids into your program? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you have to sell yourself. You betcha. You really have to. You also, I I, I can remember administrators saying to me, you know, I'm really amazed that you've got kids from every part of the school. You know, I didn't have just kids from National Honor Society or just kids that were in the arts, but... I really always felt that the busiest kids were the best kids to have in choir. So if they were busy, they had so much talent that they liked to share, and that was something they could share. And I didn't want choir to be more important than anything else. I think one of the things I did to sell myself was become involved in the students' activities, sports activities, plays. Don't think I ever went to do a, to a debate, um, but if if the kids know know you're interested in what they do, then they start looking at you as somebody they might think about being involved with too. Um, and of course, it's recruiting boys, and I always remember <laughs> quoting Ed Counselor one of my former students who ended up teaching at Kursley saying, You know, I couldn't sing very well, but you just put me next to Dan Schmier, who could. But there were so many good looking girls in there that I had to be in choir.
2: And <laughs> do
0: Choir is a good place to meet people. That yes, is it where is. I met my spouse. There you go. And yes. Good people in choir. Yes. So good people in band theater. I mean yep. I think that some of our my most treasured memories in school, for sure. And anything you want to add about recruitment, Ron?
2: Well, I think that um, when once the kids realize that they were important to you, um, and that you were more concerned about teaching the student than you were teaching the literature, um, helping, helping them be successful, I mean, you could do anything with kids. I I remember I was talking with a college professor one time. He was a business professor. And I said, you know, if you get so concerned about teaching the material, you forget who you're teaching. And I said, who you teach is more important than what you teach. Because I said, once you reach the person, you can teach them anything because they believe you. My, my former principal who became superintendent later said uh he called me the he called me the pied piper we had so many kids in school he said you like the pied piper under bushy i said no he says no look how many kids you got well we had a large program we have the largest program in school um somebody said why did you build such a large program i said job security i didn't want to you know i mean you know and then it just it just ballooned after that but um You know, I I remember the principal saying to me, one of the principals saying to me, okay, if I help you get this program, it better be good. And that's when we started working with select women's ensembles and select choirs, and uh, we started expanding our program. But like Rick said, uh, getting your administration to understand the importance of, of music, and it was really interesting once you had that kind of following with students, you had that kind of following with parents, it was like if I needed something done, I had a few parents that would help me with that. And I wasn't involved. And I won't tell you specifics, but it really worked to my advantage because the because I had a superintendent say, if you want something done, get the parents to do it. And I'm like, so you know that really made a big difference. Now we didn't have a booster group. Uh, I know I think Rick did you had a parent booster you had a choir boosters. Uh, we were talking about starting one, but I did so much with my students uh, in leadership that I didn't use we didn't use a parent boosters but when we needed our parents to back us um, the the parents, Really rallied, and um,
0: let's stick with that for a second because, in talking with people recently, one of the challenges is finding adults to participate in uh, on boards and and to help out with programs. So I don't only want to talk about recruitment with students, but how do you get those parents to want to be involved and want to support the program?
2: Get to their kids once their kids develop a passion, and their parents see how it changes them and how it matures them. And they'll say, I've never heard them sing before. I've never, heard them, I've never seen them so excited about anything before. They can hardly wait to get here because um, not only the classroom, but the, the relationships they developed in choir and their friends, they all hung out together. And um, so once the, once the parents saw that, you know, you got to get the kids on board. I had a teacher ask me that very same question: How do you get the kids to buy into the program? Well, oh, got to buy into the kids, and you got to—they've got to know what kind of passion you have for them, as well as for the music. You know, kids told me I had developed so much passion for music because of being in the program, because I saw your passion, and when you share your passion with them, its 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 not just a one-dimensional um idea it's 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 get but but you get the kids on board parents will follow
0: you said you have to buy into the kids um I think we would all agree that some students are easier to buy into than others initially maybe I mean you get those kids that walk in the room and they are just fired up right away but and I'll stick with you and then we'll and then we'll move over to Rick tell me about a time where it was difficult to connect with a student or maybe where you, you, you turned a relationship around that maybe wasn't going well at the start.
2: His name is Brad. Brad came in as a freshman. Brad had his hair over his eyes and he would not talk hardly to anybody, but he got in choir. And he was not belligerent, but he was not very involved. And we kept working with him, working with him. Finally, finally, his senior year. Oh, he pulled his hair back when we performed. He pulled his hair off his eyes. I said, no, you can't have your hair in your eyes when you perform. Okay. And I'd like to see your eyes. Finally, his senior year, he made the top choir. He made an acapella choir. He came in the first day. Hair was all cut. He looked like, and the, and the kids are like, Brad, you look great. Still quiet. Still not, you know, still rather reserved, but we have a. At the end of the year, the seniors get to audition for singing at our pop concert, and we have a. We have auditions. They sign up for, and they have to. They have to try out right in front of the choir, and it's it's a 90, 90 voice choir, so it's not a small crowd, and their peers, Brad. Tried out. And. It was one of the most amazing sights. I sat back in the back of the room, and the kids basically embraced him from their chairs. They just cheered him on when he got done. It was so cool. Now, he didn't make it. He hadn't developed himself. But the fact that he tried out in front of everybody, I mean, miles were like, you got to be kidding me. But it was so cool to see that turnaround. Brad went on to college, talked to his mom not long ago. Brad went on to college Is was doing very well. But, you know, it took him three years to grow up. But it was neat to see. That's that's one example.
0: Um, And I'm sure you have many more. I mean, when I think about all I'm sure you have so many. So thank you for picking one. And I love how you talk about that was success for him. For some students, it's easy to get up in front of people. And so what they're reaching for, their goal, is different. Mm -hmm. And so... We love our students in different ways, and we're excited when they reach milestones, their own individual milestones. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. What about you, Rick? Did you ever have a student that gave you grief, or were all of your students perfect?
2: (laughs) Well, don't mention Megan. Yes, No, I I won't mention Megan.
1: Uh, I'm not thinking of any specific person, but one of the biggest problems that I remember facing with kids were the, the kids that either felt they couldn't or sometimes they were right, they just couldn't match pitch. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time with my own college director talking about this, my own college voice teacher. And his philosophy was start them where they are speaking. Find a pitch that you can get them to go where they are speaking. And then... Give Richardson head voice, mm-hmm. get them to to use that head voice, and then kind of slide down through your voice. And it, it isn't singing; it's just making different pitch sensations. There were very few kids that that could never match a pitch. Most of them, you got through. Now it doesn't mean they were great singers, but they knew they could be part of the choir. And that was that was probably one of the most rewarding things that I can remember doing. The other thing that I feel really like real bad about that I wasn't very good at was teaching the kids that were special, the special ed kids. We had a very accepting um, student body at Kersley. I mean, there certainly there were times when kids that were in special ed that were made fun of. But when they came into my classes... The kids already knew that they were in special ed, but they were treated like real people. Um, But what I'm finding now that I have a a granddaughter that has problems and some problems, my wife has been teaching her, and I I realize my expectations as a teacher just weren't realistic for those kinds of kids. It's really difficult to do that when you're in a group and they're in the group with you, and everybody's seeming to catch on except this one kid over here. Um, that That's something that uh, I always struggled with, and I think probably any of us that teach music. We're so used to being able to have gifted students. Yeah. I mean, they come in and you tell them something one time and they've got it. But kids that need that extra help, and more patience. That's, that's been a difficult situation, but it's a good one.
0: I appreciate that you brought up your personal experience in your family with your granddaughter. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, what your wife is doing and her musical journey? Just dive a little bit more into that for us.
1: My wife has taught herself to play guitar. I'm really proud of her. She has done it all online, You can do anything with YouTube these days. And she practices probably a half an hour to an hour every day now. Maddie loved hearing the guitar. So Kay decided that she would teach her. So she was with us for a few weeks. And we had a second guitar. what does
0: Maddie have? Can you? Uh,
1: She has Down syndrome. And, but she loves music, just absolutely loves music. Um, she was raised listening to James Taylor. Just now, if you get in the car with her, she says, James, you got to put James on. Um, but she has learned to play the guitar um, a lot more because Kay would teach her. And she started with what Maddie could do Maddie could do rhythm. Didn't matter what strings she was playing she'd just strum and Kay would sing with her and play and Maddie would strum one of her aunts gave her a guitar so Maddie has her own guitar now then Kay started going the top the the low string and the top string she can go back and forth so she could learn to pick and then she put stars in places and little markers and um She can do three or four chords now. Uh, The C chord, the D chord, and the G chord, which means uh, the C chord is Charlie. That's her sister. The D chord is Grandpa Don. And the G chord is Gigi, Grandma. And she can go back and forth, not at a real good speed, but it doesn't matter to Kay. So she makes a mistake. It doesn't matter. She is now singing... And, and getting pitches, uh, which she was almost all talking. Um, her favorite song now, <laughs> you're not gonna believe this. Bruce Springsteen did a heritage con- did a heritage festival in New Orleans where he did lot, like a whole CD of, of folk songs and old songs. Mary, don't You Weep. She knows all the words. She sings and plays that. And like once a month this winter, we would do a COVID concert because I'm teaching her little sister piano on Zoom. So Charlie and Maddie would do reading. They would do vocabulary and then they would perform. And then sometimes we'd do our own jam thing together, but they did their own concerts. And, uh, Last Saturday was our last COVID concert before they went on vacation, and they did Mary, Don't You Weep. And it's like, it is Maddie's favorite. In fact, her mother said, uh, could we find some other music? <laughs> 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 but Springsteen, that CD on, that those recordings on YouTube are unbelievable. You just, it's not like anything else he's ever done. And Maddie just loves them, you know, and she got to go, with her dad to a James Taylor concert a year ago, and that was pretty exciting too. So, but she's she's uh, a delight to watch and to listen, and she loves playing guitar, loves
0: it. Thank you for sharing that. That's so yeah. beautiful. Yeah, it's very moving to listen to.
1: Yeah, well, she almost died on this several times when she was young, so it's kind of exciting to have her around.
0: How important is choosing literature to the success of your choral program?
1: I have my own idea about that, but I think if you ask my students, that's like the most important. Because if they don't want to sing the songs, you really can't force them. But I think I mentioned this before, you have to like what you choose. Choose something that you really believe in, But then have the guts to look at other things. Look for avant-garde. Look at the Renaissance. Don't be afraid of going to the classics of Mozart and um, Haydn. Um, And of course, we all do contemporary things, things that are written in our day and age. Um, But you have to go out and you have to listen to other choirs perform and say, would well, I like that? Um, and you listen to other conductors and their success with conducting the pieces they're doing and the students that have sung it. They get excited about it. I know Rod and I both have done our own uh, reunion concerts now. And <laughs> when I sat down and had to choose literature that I wanted to do um, two years ago at our, at our reunion, there were so many suggestions from, from people, but they really liked, well, I think most of the things I chose, the, the African piece maybe wasn't as exciting to everybody, but still, um, they had done those things before. And when they hadn't done them, they, they figured out what was going on from people that had and it it just sold them on the music and they really really like it it's like i suppose would you like to take art class if you didn't get to choose what you draw you know if you didn't have any involvement in it but um i think
2: literature is really really important kids became um connected with the literature um it would be like, can we do this this year? No, I just did it two years ago. Oh, well, I remember when my sister was inquiring. they got, I said, well, by the time you're a senior, we might be able to do it. Then you had to let time, time uh, lapse a little bit. I saved some pieces for my last couple years. I call them my greatest hits. And, you know, we just, we did some pieces that the kids loved and, you know, everything from the La of by Mozart. I love that piece. And, uh, uh, and so and many of them were classics some of them were contemporaries but they the kids um I remember when my daughter was in school we heard a piece down at uh, Nutria High School and they went we can do that piece I went you can't do that you kid there's no way yes we can and they pushed me up I finally bought it and they performed it and it was but You know, they would encourage me on some things they liked, and I'd encourage them on things I liked, and we went back and forth. I ended up having the final say, but I did listen to them, and there were pieces that made them very proud um, to perform well. I remember one time, it, it, it never happened to me before, but they sang this inspired piece at festival. And as they were walking to clinic, other choirs were chasing them down the hallway going, that was amazing. That was so cool. And the, they said, Mr. Bush has a sense of pride. We've never been treated like that before. We felt so good about what we had done. And um, the other, you know, each choir had had some pieces they were really proud of. And uh, I think it also was a, a way to encourage kids when you get to this choir, you can do even more literature and the literature that is at a, at a different level but I, I we we both challenged all our kids at all levels to do something just a little above what they could do and they would go to college and say uh we uh <laughs> we were really well prepared miss bushy i said what do you mean well we're singing stuff and some kids don't know how to sight read in college i said what do you mean they do not know how to sight read
0: let's talk about um student leadership in the classroom rod you have a lot of experience with this 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 was a big part of your teaching style and your culture especially later on in your teaching years correct
2: Uh, rick and i have talked about the fact that our programs are so big that we couldn't do it by ourselves and we needed kids to duplicate us my wife said you couldn't have done it all by yourself you needed those kids um but i um when I first started teaching and I can't tell you who it was, it might've been Dr. Hopkins, but they said, you're teaching high school kids, point them in the right direction and get out of the way. And that kind of frightened me. I thought, well, I don't know if I know how to do that or not. But as you get to know kids and you, we started with what we, what we called an office. We had an officers group, a group of officers that they elected every year. And, um, you would empower those kids to do certain things. Um, <clears throat> later on in my career, we started doing a lot of fundraising because we took tours. We came to your school a couple times. Uh, well, when we did fundraisers, the kids that did the work got the credit in what we call their account, um, and everybody had a separate account. And the kids, of course, the kids would do it on spreadsheets. I don't have to do anything. And I said, who's good at this? And and so they would elect them as treasurer of that classroom, and they would collect the money. They would put it all in, um, put it all in the database, and it was it was great from that standpoint. So kids doing some of the busy work that I didn't have to worry about, and I could always look it up. We did a we did a thing with um, those cards you sell for ten dollars, and each kid gets five bucks, or the the choir gets five bucks. So we would give two fifty to the student, two fifty would go to the choir, and then we had to pay the other half to the company. But things like that, we raised we raised money and raised, you know, that kind of thing. But when it came down to student leaders, um, we had uh, a number of kids that would say, well, I, I think I would like to help with running the class. So I don't know even know how it happened, but I started having student conductors. It went back into the 80s. I had a couple of kids that did that. One of my student teachers was also a student of mine, which is unusual, but I remember her conducting a concert for me. And then I didn't do a lot with it. Um, I mean, I had student I had student leaders every year. Um, but the the bigger our program became, the more I leaned on those kids. I had kids in charge of the library. I had kids in charge of. Uh, like I said, the Treasury, I had kids in charge of any social activities the choir did. That was vice president's job. The president uh, was kind of overseeing all that, and we would have meetings and talk about issues with this and that. But um, I, I started stepping back and letting the kids kind of take over. My last few years, they decided they wanted to do a lock-in. And I said, no. I said, no, no, we want to do it before school starts. Okay, well we're gonna have a we're gonna have a, a practice. We'll do all our I'll introduce all our music at that at about oh midnight. So from midnight to two o'clock we had a rehearsal. Well, and then at two o'clock they were gonna have a we they had a water balloon fight, <clears throat> which <laughs> it was at night, and yes the police showed up uh, <laughs> because they woke up some dogs who whose owners called the police and the kids said are, are you going to get arrested I said I, I hope not but you know that was that's not student leadership but it was they organized this whole thing they organized activities for the kids scavenger hunts. I mean it was hilarious they had them all they had all the kids in teams and they did team building within the choir and I just stood back all I did was run rehearsal and them and their parents ran this whole thing and I just watched what they were doing, and I participated with them. But it was just hilarious um, for it to take place like that. And then they, they started doing it. They're still doing it. Even though I'm, I'm gone, they're still doing it. Um, but I started involving kids in conducting, and they would start with my young choirs and then move up to the next level. And I, I can tell you right now, I've got my last four or five students that were in leadership of the choir are out teaching full-time. Um, they would get to college, and I remember a couple of my kids that went to Michigan State to interview, and they said, I said, how'd your interview go? Oh, it was easy. All they wanted to talk about was me conducting the choir. I said, they didn't talk about you like your musical background? They said, no. Nah. No, they wanted to know about my leadership program because they had heard me sing already. And they said, uh, "Well, who picked the music?" They said, well, "Well, I did. Well did Mr. Bushy help you? Well, he approved it, but yeah, well, who can who rehearsed them? I did. Was he there? Oh yeah. well, who conducted him in concert? I got to conduct one song each concert. Are you serious. You mean you conduct it? yeah. And it was really interesting. One of my girls went over to Michigan State as a freshman was singing in a church choir. And <clears throat> she was telling me, she says, this guy was conducting and he didn't know how to conduct it. And Maggie was, <clears throat> Maggie was so funny. I, I asked some of her uh, peers when I was helping at Hazlitt a few years ago. I said, do you think Maggie knows how smart she is? They said, oh, no. She's brilliant. I mean, one day, she was in charge of my woman's chorale. She was a student conductor for them. She came in with a song that I didn't even know, taught it to them in one rehearsal. All, like, it was like six parts. Taught it to them, and she was done. And I said, well, wait, where did you get that? She goes, oh, I just found it. I wrote it out. I, I found it. It was a pop song, and she wrote it out. I mean, it was amazing.
0: As a student. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and and... She was also in charge of my girls' group. She was one of the captains for that, and she would write stuff for them. And I mean, it was amazing. I I didn't realize how brilliant she was. She wrote stuff out for Rockapella Choir uh, at the end of some of our pop stuff. She would. She's. I think I can arrange that better than the one you bought. And I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, let him go. Uh, just get out of the way. And uh, but she got to Michigan State, and um, she was this church choir. <laughs> this guy's conducting. She goes, well, Can I help you with that? He goes, do you know how to says, I think I do. I think I know how to do this. And she got up and conducted it. And one of, the other, one of my other kids was in the choir and said, oh, yeah, Maggie knew how to do it. And we knew she would. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it, was, it was neat to see that kind of thing go on. I remember we went to CMU on tour one year, my last year. I took my women's corral up there to work with Nina. Uh, oh, my. I don't want to talk about that right now. That was such a special time. Nina sat me in her office. She goes, okay, I wanna know, how did you know when to retire? And we just talked about that, and what a precious woman. She worked with my kids. My kids just loved her. But I took my woman's corral over to the high school to sing, and Jillian conducted one of the pieces and we needed a horn player. So the horn player is standing over to the side. He came over. He cut class. <laughs> Shouldn't tell you this. He cut class, and I paid him 50 bucks. And he, I said, would you, come, would you come over and play horn for 50 bucks for this one piece? Um, we were doing uh, Heart, We Will Forget Him. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I needed a horn player, and he, he knew that I'd sent him the music. He said, yeah, I, I can get out. So he came over and played the piece. Well, he's standing with me on the side, and Jillian's conducting a piece. And he said, is that your student teacher? I said, oh, no. She's a senior. He's, You're kidding me. It, the kids developed such a presence. They knew, the students knew how much those kids loved them and how mu- and they trusted them. They built a trust up with that leadership because they didn't have an agenda and it wasn't about them. It was about what they were doing. And, uh, and Rick will tell you the same thing, that watching kids lead kids was one of, you know, students leading students. Is um, I think a real was was a, a real blessing when my when I look back at my program that's that's one of the things I I loved so much.
1: Well, I came in it kind of accidentally. Your mother was in the choir. My wife was pregnant. Her water broke the day of baccalaureate. I had a junior in high school that directed that year I didn't even go so he did well actually I had been diagnosed with diabetes that winter and like a week before festival he directed the choir so there was any question that Dan knew what to do and he he did a great job people came to me and said you can't believe what he did well yeah I could you know and the other person on you know that we're really talking about is you You know, I can remember you coming into one of my early girls' ensembles and being my assistant and conducting. And those kids just, they really took to you because they knew you as a person, as a singer. You sang with them. Um, I think where it really starts is with, with section leaders and with sectionals. So you put somebody in charge of something smaller at first and you know that they know the tenor part or the soprano part or whatever, and you give them that responsibility. And if they don't like it, fine, they let you know right away. But you also find out that they're capable and they can do every bit as much as you've been doing. Um, And it it really is a, a big, big help to everybody. They like having somebody in their choir that they can depend on even if you get called to the office, you got to have somebody run the classroom and if there's somebody there that they trust as much as you it's that's what it's all about that, that really helps
2: Megan, didn't you in, uh, develop a passion for teaching by doing that?
0: It was something that I thought that I really enjoyed but then when I was given the opportunity to do it I thought, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, this is... And if, and at the time, I wanted to be a band director still. But it's funny because the foreshadowing there, you know, because yeah. ultimately I did go to the dark side and become a choir director.
1: Yes, but you know where it came down to is I knew that you had a passion for both of them. And you went as a double major to CMU. And after a couple of years, I said to you, you've got to pick one. You've got to pick one because you can't be the band director and the choir director in the same school. Because one's going to be your favorite. And they're going to know which one you really like the best. That's all there is to it.
0: I remember um, that. Yeah.
1: And, and you work yourself to death trying to do both. It's <laughs> not that you can't direct both of them, but you can't be the head person in both and, and do everything, do yourself justice.
0: People think because you're a music teacher, you can teach anything. And teaching elementary music is very different from teaching secondary choir. And there are so many different facets about that. I mean, there are so many things when you talk about interacting with just people. You're talking about personality. You're talking about the level of music that you're comfortable working with. And, um, and so I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because it, it would have been too much. To try to be a great band director and to try to be a great choir director, if you really want to be good at what you're doing, you really need to pick something. And that can go with anything in life. Um, So, yeah, but I am really grateful for that opportunity because it it did teach me something about myself. And so I'm I'm really grateful that both of you incorporated that into your into your classroom culture because those kids will never forget that. And oftentimes that was kind of the the catalyst for what led them down the path to becoming teachers.
2: Well, I've and I've had the two girls I have out teaching high school choir right now have said to me, We do stuff the same way we did it in high school. Well, you know, you find a model that worked and they and I, I see them transferring their passion into their kids right now. And it's really interesting. And, and it's it really makes it's it's very um, fulfilling to know that, that, that that's happening.
1: I, I remember going to a conference with Anton Armstrong and he talked about the style of conductor that he has become. And he said he was raised under the kind of conductor that he had to fear because that's the way everybody felt you had to be you had to to beat things into kids and you had to make them fear you and you weren't on the same team. Um, But he said, I found that so much more confidence is instilled in people when you show them that you believe in them and that you give them a, a chance to make a decision with you. Now, what do you think about this? He said, my conductors that I grew up under would never have asked what, what I wanted to do or what we wanted to do as singers. But he said, I'm finding that that's a much better way to teach and to, to be successful to get everybody to buy into what you are doing. And uh, especially listening to a person with that much behind his name. I mean, he's the t- one of the top people I've heard Henry Leck at Indianapolis speak the same thing. You know, you talk about two of the people that I think are choral gods. Those are those are two of them. They just know how to involve people in what they're doing. And, and then it becomes a team effort between the conductor and the choir, and you've got them. And you learn from them, too. Somebody will suggest something that you weren't considering and you realize, oh, that works better than my idea. So it's a, it's a two way street, but that's not the way I was raised. That's not the kind of conductor I was taught under.
2: You sent me to see Henry Luck. I remember I, I went down to work within the first year and, and we're sitting in the cafeteria uh, after he'd worked with my kids. And I said, my brother told me you the man, and I'm going to tell you, Henry, you the man. And I said, that was amazing as well. Thank you. he, we were at Butler University, which is where he is, and we got to work, uh, l- listen to his Indianapolis Children's Choir, and um, his choir, his college choir. But he took our kids and worked with. He had a couple of his conductors work with our kids, and then he worked with them. And they sat down, and they couldn't stop. They couldn't stop talking about what he had done with them, but just a powerful personality that understands how to get to, how to get to kids. And I agree. Henry luck was, was amazing too. I, you know what, Rick? Um, we went out to St. Olaf our last, uh, my second of last year teaching and my high school principal had gone to school with Dr. Aspice who is now at TCU, but he was the conductor there. And he says, I sang in, the, I sang in the discords with Dr. Aspice. He was getting his PhD at Michigan State. He said, let me see if we can go out there. So we ended up going out and sitting down with Chris. And the here's what amazed me. We walked across St. Olaf's campus on the way to the rehearsal hall. He called, I think, every student by name as he walked across that campus. And I'm walking with Jason, our principal, and I'm saying, are you listening to this? He goes, he knows all these kids. But... You know, the, the large majority of those kids were either in choir, band, or orchestra. And when he went into work with our kids, I mean, he had them in the palm of his hand because he knew how to get to them emotionally. He connected with them emotionally. And once he did that, he, you know, like we said, you could teach him anything. But it was, but you know, it was that same personality. That that person that Henry Leiker, Anton Armstrong, who also was out at St. Olaf. I,
1: I saw this change in Robert Shaw uh, over the years. I remember Bill Holder saying he worked with Robert Shaw when he came to his high school choir. This is a f- friend of oh, Rod no. and mine.
2: It wasn't Robert Shaw.
1: Yeah, it was Robert Shaw. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, he turned around before they performed and apologized to the audience for how bad it was going to be. Yeah. One of the last few years that I taught, I went to Ohio State, believe it or not, um, for the day. I I wore boots. Um, (laughs) And uh, we worked on the Elijah. Robert Shaw, and I had seen him in rehearsals and working with groups and things all my life as a choir director, from afar at least. He treated us like real people. We sang for six hours. He said, don't sing over mezzo forte. And even if you have to sing mezzo forte, don't do it very often. I want you to be able to talk when you're done. It was not the same Robert Shaw that I had heard rehearse the Brahms Requiem the first couple years that I was teaching. He was still demanding but he would talk to you as as a person and and as people out there rather than just dictating everything. Uh, and there was nobody there that was going to challenge Robert Shaw. We were there because we wanted to learn from him. But he, as a person, changed personalities. And he said that too. You know, at, at our break time, everybody went up there and had him sign their copies of Elijah. And he took, his time to give to them, you know, and to acknowledge this is my accompanist, the best 12-handed kind of player that I've ever had. He literally played off the score and helped you with your parts all along while he was playing. <laughs> he played off the orchestral score. I mean,
0: so if Shaw if something. So if Robert Shaw can grow, we can grow. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. And now, you taught for 33 years. mm
1: mm-hmm.
0: in, in all that time... In the many, many years that you <laughs> taught, um, did you ever go through a difficult season of teaching? Maybe one where you even thought that you didn't want to teach anymore or that you maybe wanted to do something else.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was not music. It was political. It was a political situation in the school system. And it was the year that we went to Taiwan in 1985. I went with my principal who was Taiwanese and took 50 kids to to Taiwan and to Hong Kong. It was really something, but it just about ruined me as a teacher, everything that went on and, and fighting with administrators. And, um, and I had, a, of course, I had a lot of seniors and I had to restructure the whole program after that. And that was difficult. And I almost didn't, wanted to teach anymore
0: what got you through it
1: um sitting down and deciding that I could do things differently um one of the things that I had done and I think choir directors always have to consider these kinds of things what size of group do I want I had always thought that my my best choir was my big choir that's where I wanted to, to have most of the effort. But I liked having my small ensemble. And Will Nichols has always said this, you've got to be careful. One group is going to be your best, your favorite. You, you, it's hard to hide that. Um, so my chorale, which was my 16 or 20-member ensemble, I allowed to say, you don't have to be in both groups. And it really kind of destroyed my big group because of it. So I went back and said, hmm, maybe we can't do this anymore. And I did not have a corral as a class for quite a few years because of that. But what it did was strengthen my numbers in the big group. And there wasn't a competition between the small group and the big group because of it. And that really got us back on track. But, I mean, the year that it happened, I had an almost all-sophomore group. They got ones at festival, which just shocked the daylights out of me. And they insisted to go to state festival. And I just said, oh, we can't go to state festival. We can't. Well, we went. You know, and they got threes. And they deserved them. And I knew they would. But they got ones by the time they were seniors. And not only that, they'd gotten a lot better. That's all there was to it because that's where my energy was. Then the ensemble that had been a class became um, an out-of-school ensemble. And it got better when the kids came to me and said, "Uh, could we maybe meet another time? What do you mean? Well, after school isn't working. When do you want to meet? Oh, we want to meet at 6.30 in the morning. It's like, huh? But we did it. And Rod did the same thing. And our ensembles really flourished. Now, there were times we met twice a week, except when they wanted to meet more. And sometimes, just Pirate Festival, we'd meet five times a week, you know. So I'd get up at 4.45 and, you know, and go into school. I
2: don't miss that
1: no i don't miss it either and i don't miss an alarm clock that's or, or a calendar nobody tells me when i have to do anything anymore um but the ensemble then became um its own entity and didn't challenge like the politically the other group now eventually that class that group did become a class but because of what the school was doing with the number of requirements that they had a lot of those kids as juniors and seniors they they had like three and four and five hours like how can i get a class so it wasn't so difficult to have that ensemble as class um but i never let it compete with the other one anymore and that that really changed things an awful lot
0: what about you rod did you ever go through a difficult season of your teaching career
2: oh um absolutely and and i I agree with Rick. Much of it was uh, the politics of trying to decide how I can fit this program into the school. Eventually, they scheduled the whole school around the performing arts program.
0: That's very fortunate and unusual.
2: Very unusual, but they realized that's what the numbers were. That's that's what happened at Kersley too. sure, sure. Yeah. you know it's everything sort of got a, scheduled
1: around Acapella choir, which was the biggest class in the school.
2: Yeah. It was you a tale that wag the dog, yeah, and you and uh, it wasn't on purpose. it just happened that way. And we had a lot of the leadership from the school in that classroom. Um, but you know I mean, it was there were some real tough times. Uh, there were times I went look. I went looking for a job a couple times. Um, because I was so discouraged with, um, kind of with a lot of the administrative things going on, but you know what? Um, I I look back and, and I can, you know, now my hindsight is wonderful, but, um, it was, it was a very challenging time for me personally, uh, because I'm raising kids And, um, I'm trying to keep this program going and trying to get it to flourish. And there were times I didn't think it was going to make it. There were times, I mean, it was a real struggle. And, uh, but you know, I, that all washes away when you, when I decided I was going to win people over instead of fight them. And, um, so and I'm, my principal was the one. She did not like me. But I just kept talking to her, kept working with her. Before she retired, we made her an honorary member of our girls group classicality. And she performed on stage. And I remember her standing next to me on stage going, "Rod, I'm so nervous. I said, you're going to do just fine. And I still communicate with her on Facebook. And when we had our first reunion, she stood in the back lecture hall with both hands over her head. She didn't come up, come up to see me because she was getting pretty old at that time. But she put her hands over her head, one of those way to go. And you know what? It it was that was fulfilling for me because there were a, there were some battles that I went through. I won't get into. I went through with a number of people. Um, that I kind of outlived them, you might say. Um, I went through probably 17 principals in my career in my 44 years. Um, I don't know how many superintendents. But things kept changing. But we tried to be constant. We still have the job to do here. We still have kids to teach here. And no matter what's going on out there, we still have kids we want to reach. We still have kids we want to we want to uh, make successful and it happened but yeah there were discouraging times i mean with anything there is going to be it's not going to be all you know roses
0: if you could give one piece of advice to someone who is starting their journey as a music educator whether they're just coming into their first job or they're even starting college getting into their teaching degree what is the one piece of advice that you would give them?
2: Find a mentor you trust. Find someone to help you. Don't feel you have to do it by yourself. Don't feel like you're on an island. You're not the first person that's done this, and you won't be the last. And there are people out there that care about you and will help you succeed. You just have to ask, and don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to take your students (laughs) in front of somebody you've never met before. I mean I put my kids in front of college people all the time and you know that's kind of threatening because they're they're can they're criticizing your work but that's that's how we grow and you grow by letting somebody evaluate you you said you talked to Brandon Johnson Dr. Johnson here I brought him out to work with my kids for only an hour and it was inspiring and I mean if I was still teaching I'd be I would be plugging into him all the time. and I took my kids over to Michigan State to work with people and I had people come up for, I had Jerry Blackstone come up to work with my kids. And it, there, are, there are so many resources out there to help our students um, you know that's and now I'd take my kids up to work with Nina or I'd take them over to uh, Western to work over there. I just took them all as many places as I could. Rick told me a long time ago, I said, I'm having trouble with my women's choirs. He goes, take them up to Nina. She'll help you with your girls. And boy, it's true. You, th- there are people that will help you. So find help. Don't feel you're having to do it by yourself. I remember when I was looking for a job,
1: I thought to myself, there are several things that I have to have. One is I have to have a school with enough bodies to be able to populate my choirs in good size. Two, I don't want to follow God. I went to a place that hadn't had a very successful program, so my expectations weren't so high from everybody else. And then three, get the administration to understand what you want and work with them. And those those things all happened. And they, I think, added to my success. Now, it helped that I had school board members who had students in my choirs, and they stuck up for me and said, no, I, if he wants that piano, buy that piano. Um, and then I had... A lot of other school board members become school board members because they were part of my booster group. So they, they helped. And I had a teaching staff that I didn't have to explain everything to. Like, we were talking about scheduling. When we talked about scheduling as a staff, it was the other teachers that said, leave a cappella choir at fourth hour. And let everybody else schedule around them because those kids are going to be in advanced chemistry and civics and advanced English. And that's fine. Just leave it there. And they stuck up for me. And that really helped. So the more cooperation you get from from everyone, the better it is.
0: We're going to do something now. That I'm really excited about because I haven't tried this yet, but we're going to do kind of a lightning round quick oh, question thing. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, this is like one word or one sentence responses. All right. Are you guys ready? And so we'll start with you and yeah, we'll, right. we'll kind of switch back and forth. Johnny Cash or Frank Sinatra?
1: Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra.
0: Taylor Swift or Lady Gaga.
1: Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga.
0: Who is your favorite choral composer?
1: Oh my goodness. Rudder? I don't know if I have a favorite. I don't know the one I I'm working with. The one I'm working on. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah,
0: <laughs> favorite musical?
1: Fiddler on the Roof. We did The Wizard of Oz. That was fun.
0: Are you a morning person or a night owl?
1: Night owl. Morning.
0: If you won the lottery, what is the first thing you would buy?
2: <laughs> hunting land up north another house for my wife in Flo- or a house for my wife in Florida <laughs> and our grandkids
0: if you could remove one thing from the world what would it be
2: ignorance
1: not a person <laughs>
0: <laughs> maybe we'll go a different direction not a person <laughs> unless it's a type of person I mean sure maybe
1: yeah, somebody that's only involved in politics.
0: What is your favorite thing to do with your family?
1: Spend time with them,
2: especially up north with my grandkids. We have a thing called Camp Emu and Papa with all seven grandkids. It's just a scream. Just spend a time with them. Spend a time with the kids golfing, swimming.
0: I'm so grateful to spend time with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to share. Thanks, Megan. And uh, this has just been really wonderful.
2: It's been Yay! fun. You're amazing. Thank you. Thanks, Megan.
0: Thank you for listening to Sing Coach Conduct. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the show by clicking the subscribe button.